Welcome to the Adventure Therapy Collective Podcast. Our offices are mountains, rivers, and the woods. Climbing, hiking, and paddling are just what the doctor ordered. Okay, listen up, people. Hit the pause button in one second and just do a Google of Mark Kartner. What will come up is how strangely and amazingly recognized this dude's work is. He comes from a uh, German, Scottish, English, and indigenous descent, and he brings 20 years experience from a child protection and investigation unit. Daniel and I have been freaking out all week, realizing that the fuzz has been invited into the ATC podcast. First off, I'm going to say, be careful, because if you're in the U.S. and you Google Mark Kartner, you're just going to find LinkedIn for some public relations coordinator in North Carolina. <laughs> I forgot I spend most of my days Googling Mark Kartner, which is... <laughs> but in Australia, you're going to find out about this incredible cop that two skateboarders are going to interview. And we're just worried he's probably going to take our skateboards away from us by the time we're done. And and listen, Mark, I met Mark at a conference a few years ago, Australian Adventure Therapy Conference, and he came up afterwards and, and we chatted about evaluating his program and doing good research and all of this stuff. And now he's infiltrated us and he is co-chair of the Australian Association for Bush Adventure Therapy. He's someone that has really challenged me as far as where clinical training matters, the cash value of clinical training, because... This guy's program in his work is unbelievable. Um, it is forward thinking, it's recognized, and it's it's incredible. And yeah, he's challenged me a little bit too. Um, my, my research area, the research I do is adventure therapy and prevention. And probably two of the best prevention people that I know in adventure therapy are not therapists. Mark Kartner is one of them who is a police officer. Jen Jevertson is another one who is an educator. And, and it shows how widely some of these techniques that we do are being used by different fields. And in this instance, to, to promote mental health and promote successful outcomes for kids that have went through a whole lot. He does some really cool stuff. Uh, and, and even when you get him on a roll of talking about his his life as a detective, it's it is just fascinating. This guy comes with the richest life experience. And then he brings that to his work. So, yeah, I think if there's anyone, I if I was going to start a program with anybody here in Australia, Mark would be top of the list. His knowledge of the land, his caring for country, and just his perspective on always wanting to learn and being an open book of trying to become better and uh, getting more for this field. And he's way more adventurous than we are. Like, we're sitting here in the office having a recording a conversation and he's out surfing right now. He's just yes. a super rad guy. Mark, thanks for joining us. You, yeah, uh, thanks so much. And you just got oh, back from surf, uh, in uh, beautiful Queensland, Australia. And you're a cool dude. I think of you as a really great friend and colleague of mine and, uh, um, you've you've taken over. You've you've entered and kicked the door down of Australian adventure therapy by storm. That said, uh, you're the second bill to who we sort of wanted. So, can you tell us a bit about who Judy Atkinson is and why she's cooler than you are? All right. Well, Judy is um, my mother's oldest sister. She's uh, always been a um, 
uh, key figure in my life. Probably having said that, I probably didn't really get to know until until I was older when I was in my youth. But yeah, the Atkinsons are all our cousins, and so I know her well. Whereas, yeah, well, I just I think I know anybody. And she introduced me to the Australian Association of Bush Adventure Therapy. She was a keynote speaker, introduced me to the forum, and um, been hanging around ever since. I remember walking in. I, I showed up a bit late to the conference during uh, the first time Judy did a keynote, and I showed up a bit late. And this person is going, "We don't like the word therapy. We think social workers have let us down." And I was like, "Who does this person think they are?" And then I googled her and went, "Oh, yeah, she's way cooler than me." And, and <laughs> Judy is a voice, an Australian voice for the rights of Indigenous people and Indigenous youth and people in custody and, uh, yeah, very well uh, regarded as far as um, an, an, an Indigenous woman teaching about culture and connection to country and, and things like that. Am I saying that right, Mark? Yeah, that's that has been her life's work. Mark, so speaking of your relationship with Judy, could you explain some ideas about the connection to country and how this has evolved for you over the years in your work and in your life? It, it, it eludes my rational mind. It shouldn't make any rational sense that I would have a connection to, say, the town of Hesse in Germany. Never been there in my life, but I know that that is where my grandmother's uh, parents came from. They were German immigrants, moved to Australia. doesn't make any sense to me that I would want to visit Tarum someday, which is a country, a little town of about a couple of hundred people out west. It's only about five hours west of me. Never been there in my life. I have a connection to that area. Uh, it's where my uh, great-great-grandmother lived on the banks of the Dawson River uh, as a uh, you know, traditional lifestyle as part of the human people. This idea of connection to country, it's, it's problematic to me as a rational person um, because I have connections to places that I've never been simply through uh, knowing that they have a part of my ancestry. This is why people travel halfway around the world for genealogical reasons Go visit grave sites and, you know, connection to places is important, I think. I'm going down a rabbit hole already, but I think that that the idea of connection to country is not something to be scoffed at because even people that scoff at it exhibit it in some form in their life is, in my view, everyone has a connection to a place, but it's all in different pla- different ways in different places. I have a strong connection to Cape York. I worked around there for 10 years. It's not part of my ancestral lands, but I, you know, return to it, never go back. I think, oh, man, this is my happy place. It's a good place. Mm. Uh, yeah so you know it's 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 different I, I, just to tie that off a little bit i always uh think that a good example of connection country and there are many is uh dorothy mckellar's talk on uh, uh, uh sorry poem on i love a suburb country you know her, her connection to place and then she, the first part of that poem which nobody remembers is that um she came from england but australia is now at home and she finds feels a great connection to it and i i, I think it really encapsulates the way i feel about the idea of connection to a place um, for the listeners, Mark and I, and mostly Mark, I just tagged along uh, to put something on my CV. But Mark and I did a uh, workshop together. It was an overnight hiking trip before one of the uh, recent conferences. Mark took us on a hike to an area that had big rocks, Daniel, so you would have wanted to climb these rocks. And it was an area that Mark played in as a kid and did scouts or whatever you did. And then when we're when we're walking through this area, which is stunningly beautiful, Mark is telling us about how historical and important this site was to the the traditional custodians of those lands. And it was just fascinating to see a cliff and go, that's a cliff. I'd like to climb or abseil or whatever on the, or boulder on this cliff. 
And then Mark's going, this would have been a shelter and it's perfect for viewing down into the valley and perfect for seeing. And now this land comes to life. It has a history where you can almost see the metaphorical footprints of people from thousands and thousands of years ago. And it totally changes your mind about where you're adventuring and where you're playing. There's a question in there. I didn't ask a question. I just rambled for a second. <laughs> yeah, that seems to happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I can care. Uh, well, that, look, that, that is one of my uh, my favorite places in the world, that, that whole valley, but that particular area. And it, it, it's probably a good example of a place that grew more and more important to me the more and more stories I discovered about it. At the first time I went there, I was probably 12, 13 years old. And so at the time, it was just like an adventure playground to a 12-year-old. And then it was later on, I you know, I, I discovered there was a a board there, a, a, a traditional fire-burning place. Uh, and, you know, I spoke to an Indigenous person who looked at it and said, oh, yeah, that's just uh, some fire-burning place. You'll probably find there was a uh, an occupation site just near there. Is that line of cliffs? Yep. Is there a cave? Yep, there is. He hadn't even been there, but he just knew that that's the way that they would build that, put that fire burn. And then that meant a lot more to me again. And then I, you know, discovered that there are uh, places where there are burial sites around that place. And then suddenly I realised that, you know, thumping through the bush, yelling and singing songs. may not be appropriate, certainly at some sections where a little bit more respect might be afforded to that place. And then you have a whole different outlook on that place again. And then there was a, like I said, this place is one of my favourite places because it's so unique. There's a place up there where there's a native well, a place where Aboriginal people would have gone to get a drink of water. There's not a lot of, um, it's in the high country, so there's not a lot of water up there. And, and you can literally see where there's marks rubbed off on the walls because you've got to scrape over your stomach to get into this water source. Uh, and thousands of years of rubbings that have caused a smoother sections on the high points of this rock. And then suddenly you realise that when you go in there and take a drink of water, which I used to do as a scout without thinking about it. In fact, it saved my life one time when we were up there later in my young adult youth and ran out of water. You know, I never thought that I was doing something, scooping water out of a rock hollow that has had thousands of years of tradition. You know, all these stories layer and layer and layer just makes you appreciate even more. What started as a cool place is still a cool place, but then there's this overlay of history that you put on it. It's amazing. So let's back up a little bit about who who Mark is for people that don't know. Daniel and I are shaking in our boots, and we've put away all the paraphernalia that you come from a uh, policing background, and you spent uh, the majority of your career as a child abuse detective, child protection detective. Is that how do I say that correctly? Yeah, that's right. Uh, detective, detective in child abuse. Yeah. So I've been a police officer 21 years, bit of a family tradition. My dad was a police officer for longer than that. Um, had a lot of police in the family. So we come from a long line of boilermakers and police officers. Um, and uh, yeah, so I started that in 1999. Um, actually thought that I was going there to finish off my electrical engineering degree and just get some experience in the radio electronics section of the policing. But discovered after only a year or two that what I really enjoyed was major investigations abandoned my degree and realised that I'd found my little niche in life and went into child abuse in 2003, best job I ever had for, for 10 years, um, and then eventually child abuse became the worst job I ever had for the last two years, uh, But um, and then moved down to, uh, to Bundaberg where I now. So, yeah, I've been a police officer 21 years and just about all of that in child protection. Um, very early on, I just moved straight into there and, and realised that this was um, the place where I was best suited, I guess. So, yeah, so then you make this transition and you go into adventure therapy. 
And so, well, sort of, because you're kind of one of those people that's sort of funny about the word therapy in some way. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a therapist. No, uh, that's a question. But I'd like to think the work I do is therapeutic. Well, we've crunched your numbers. It's clearly pretty effective. And uh, as I said in the introduction of this episode, if you Google Mark Kartner, and for the Americans, you'll find a totally different Mark Kartner. But uh, if you Google Mark, you'll see lots of recognition for your program. Now, you've said to me before, we've talked about this in our many conversations, that you still end up working with people with highly traumatic backgrounds, physical Mm. assaults, sexual assaults. Uh, if, if you've heard of an adverse childhood experience, these kids have had it. I'm sort of wondering what in, informs your work if you're someone that doesn't have clinical training, because I know you've challenged me. Daniel and I have both talked about this, that we come from a background of social work. We're, that's our profession. We're social workers first, adventure therapy practitioners second. And you come from policing first, but then you run this therapeutic vocational training school-based what i would call an adventure therapy program so well now what what informs my work is actually um doing a lot of study and research but when i first started it it was um it was part of it personal like i i had an idea that what worked for me with my personal experience with post-traumatic stress might work for others and it was partly my understanding of trauma outside that and and even before i started developing signs of post-traumatic stress is, is just from face-to-face um, contact and interviews with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids. Uh, I, I don't know. I've actually never counted up how many kids I've interviewed over the years who have been victims of some sort of child abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect. But it, it would be a couple of thousand, I guess, mm-hmm. um, at, at a hazard, I guess. You, you can't do that and deal with kids like that and spend thousands and thousands of hours listening to them without getting some inkling of what it means of the effect of trauma on the brain. You know, that's not something that you need to, that that is a subject of research. It just, it just is glaringly obvious to you. So a lot of what informs my background is my personal experience with helping neglected and abused kids. Um, and, And as a detective, my role, I guess, was to stop whatever abuse was happening. And, you know, I tried to do that to the best of my ability. But there, there was still this big gap in my mind that, you know, you, you'd, at best, you would discover this a child has been abused, you would uh, work with them, you get statements, you get all your evidence, you, you know, whether that be medical evidence or witness statements or, um, or, you know, whatever evidence you can gather, you use whatever legal means you have at your disposal to stop it. And then there was always this glaring error in my head that, you know, after that, at the end of the court decision or what, however that investigation would finish, you would, you know, pat the child on the back and, you know, say, look, you know, at least that's not going to happen again and, and good luck to you. And I've got now, you know, 40, 50 cases on my work list that I've got to go off to and you just think, man, who's going to pick this child up from here? Because the child has still got a problem. Like you might have stopped the immediate harm, but then you've still, you, you know full well you're leaving this traumatised kid and you just think, man, I hope someone looks after that kid. There was always this this sort of service gap and, and you try to fill that as much as you can with referrals and, and there are good organisations out there doing good work and, and a lot of them you just think, oh, thank goodness this kid's found them, but there's not enough. So part of what informs my work now is I'm trying to do or, or I just sort of create a program where I thought this is the program I wish I had at the end of that court case uh, when we'd sit out there and, you know, the child's either crying and devastated or, or, or happy or, you know, or a mixture of both. Uh, I want to create the program that I wish I could then refer that child to at that point um, myself. 
and 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 just informed by all that background that I have on, like I said, my my personal experiences with stress and my personal experiences with traumatized kids. And when people think of a police officer running adventure therapy, what you do is a boot camp, right? No, <laughs> no, shame, shame. No, no, it's uh, I've marching a hundred kilometers in the bush. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, well, I do march sometimes a hundred kilometers through the bush, but. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm an American, so I don't actually know how much 100 kilometers is. <laughs> boot camps are something that I've always shied away from, partly because the boot camp model, uh, again, so much of this is personal. The boot camp model is almost a model I went through when I was in the police academy, and I hated it. I didn't appreciate being treated like that. I was a 27-year-old. I thought that I'd been uh, selected, uh, completed certain requirements, interviews, physical fitness tests, um, intellectual tests, psych- psychometric testing. And then, uh, and then I get treated like an idiot. Uh, I, I, I don't appreciate being taught like that. So I, I just assume that kids will either, will dislike the same things I dislike and like the same things I like. If I like going uh, on adventure and uh, doing fun things out in the bush but learning and growing, then kids might be the same. But if I get spoken to, you know, like at the academy, and, and not all instructors at the academy were like that, but there were definitely some that were like that. But this sucks. I'm not going to treat kids like this. I, I, yeah. The boot camp model is based very much on that sort of training. And I don't know the police do that necessarily now. You know, I went through the Academy in 99, but it's a it's a style of training and a style of uh, we will demand your compliance. That personally, I think it is odds with what with good policing. Uh, and that might surprise a lot of people. Um, but I think it is also at odds with good training uh, and good good growth. Again, I, I, I link back to my personal experiences with most of the work I do. But like I said, nowadays, I've realised that that's, always going to create lot bias and be very limited, which is why I tap into Will's brain and uh, the brain of a lot of people who have researched this stuff and I realise that there's actually a whole body of work out there um, that you can have a look at to rely on more than your own experience. Hmm. Well, that kind of segues into one of the questions I wanted to ask you. So, you know, because we've talked about it, that one of my research interests is using adventure therapy and prevention programs or adventure-based prevention. And you're doing that. You're using uh, adventure therapy with young people who face high levels of risk, high levels of adversity. Can you tell me why you think adventure therapy and your type of adventure programming is a good tool for doing this prevention work with young people? How it works? Uh, yeah, that's a problem because I don't know the answer to it. Uh, <laughs> I just think it does. And part of the answer, and you know, I've got to be honest with this, and I get a lot of um, flack from this from work. Part of it is, it is it makes me a better person and a better person around the kids. Like I'm awkward, and I'm not ter- like I'm not terrible in a classroom. I can get up there and teach a class and have done. I'm a better person, and I connect better in the bush, and that alone um, makes it work better. Forget about what it does to kids. It just makes me, this is my happy place. I'm comfortable out here. Uh, I think they can feed off that. So I think part of that is the way it actually affects the person doing the therapy or the treatment or the crime prevention work, or I use those terms interchangeably. That's part of it. And I think that, but then I think there's also a bunch of other factors at work as well. Part of it is just the physical fitness aspects of it. We know there's a link between uh, physical health and mental health. Um, part of it is, I mean, I call my program the walk of life program because uh, I think just through walk, the walks that we do, there are life lessons involved in it. Plus, I'm a huge Die Straits fan. But that, <laughs> that, the, the, the part of that title came from this idea that there is skills that you learn on hikes and expeditions that are directly applicable to the broader life. Uh, and if you want to just say, well, that's a metaphor, 
I would agree with you. I wouldn't say that's just a metaphor either. I wouldn't be so dismissive about that idea. It is a great metaphor for life. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things at play there. But like I said, a lot of it is its effect on me makes me better for the work I want to do. And then I hope that its effect on the kids um, make them more receptive as well. So you feel like it, it, it's where your, your happy place is, where you do well. And so because of that, you can connect with the, the kids and the young people you're working with better to offer them a better version of you. Yeah. I think that's definitely one variable in that equation, but I think it's a multi-variable equation. Uh, and like all multi-variable equations, we try to break it down to one variable and then we can't work out why why that doesn't seem to explain the sum total. There are multiple variables and the total is greater than the sum of the to- of the uh, uh, of all those different variables, I think. But that's definitely a big one. And, and that makes sense. I mean, Will and I have actually talked about that. I've heard him say over and over again, I know I've measured my outcomes. I'm a better therapist in a canoe than I am in an office. I know that I work better with kids when we go walking in a park or doing an activity. So that that resonates with my live practice experience for sure. So uh, that's that's some cool insight. And, and so you bring up research and, and our previous episode was totally research heavy. So let's not go into <laughs> feedback informed treatment and outcome monitoring <laughs> practice because we'll put everybody to sleep. But we had such a fascinating conversation the other day that we uh, submitted an abstract to the conference in Norway about it, which was, what do people do when we hear research that's contradictory to what we think? And you brought up to me in our you know weekly ramble with each other that as a detective, this is vitally important to be able to pay attention when when things are contrary. So, you know, when we talk about adventure therapy and all of us being huge advocates for this work, it's also really tricky when we go, what like what you said, how does it work? I don't know. <laughs> so, so can you talk a bit about how being a detective really led you to giving a shit about research and the evidence and, and what's out there? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, look, that that is an endless source of fascination to me. And good detectives, and this may, again, you know, I might have to break some stereotypes here. Uh, <laughs> good detectives talk about this all the time, and I've worked with some very, very good detectives, and I, and I, and I tried to be one myself, you know. Um, the, the idea that evidence is paramount um, and that if the evidence disagrees with your preferred outcome, then that's just too bad for your per- preferred outcome. And that's actually really, really difficult, um, but it's, it, it, it has to be cordy work. And, you know, terrible, terrible injustices have been done when, well, for a start, police lose sight of that, but when anyone loses sight of that, I think, uh, I think that's just a universal thing, that if you have a, let's call it an ideology, a preferred outcome, and you come up with evidence that disagrees with that, then this is when, if ugly facts are destroying beautiful theories, then that's just too bad. Oh, that theory is just so beautiful, though. Yeah, that's too bad. See this fact? It's inconsistent with your theory. So you're just going to have to quash that theory or modify it in some way or even just abandon it altogether, even if that has been your life's work or you think um, things depend on it. This is, this is why I hate, gonna, I don't know if this is off track or on track, <laughs> I, I really hate police shows uh, with a few exceptions. My kids watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine all the time and I quite like that one. Uh, I used to like Barney Miller as a kid. But most police shows, you know, Law and Order and Criminal Law and Order, hate them, hate them, hate them, hate them. What uh, about cops? <laughs> yeah. Bad boys, bad boys. <laughs> <laughs> Most of them do this. At the, start of the, at the start of the show, they all follow the same pattern. 
something happens and the police officer is certain that somebody is guilty and they spend the rest of the show proving it. And I just hate that. Like that is the dumbest, stupidest way you can think as a detective. No detective worth their salt thinks that way. You don't figure out that someone's guilty and then spend the rest of your your episode. For a start, it's always a laugh anyway because I only work with one job per episode and most police are juggling, you know, several dozen. But but that that is the opposite of the way you need to think if you're a good detective. You need to say, what's the evidence first? You spend the whole episode working out what the evidence is and at the end you draw your damn conclusion. And if you've done it the wrong way around, there will be enormous temptation for you to either ignore evidence that disagrees with what your preferred conclusion was. I want this guy to be guilty. You'll probably find evidence that he's guilty. Let's find out if this guy is guilty and after we look at the evidence. That's the way you find out if he's guilty or not, which is why I just can't watch him because I sit there you know, yelling at the TV and getting angry. Uh, actually, I'd recommend the movie Richard Jewell, which did that a lot, uh, which showed an, uh, an example of police officers who, who, who thought that somebody was guilty and they went chasing after evidence to prove that. And that is the wrong way around, and it's always the wrong way around. You don't. You might start off with a bit of a hypothesis. Fair enough. I think that's a scientific method. But if you, if that hypothesis develops into an ideology, this is the way the world must work. Now let's find evidence to prove that this is the way the world must work. Then you're a bad detective, uh, and that really offends me. I really hate that because you know I've spent I spent 13 years investigating, and I've um, put many people in jail. I have done everything possibly in my power and I can be as my conscience as clear as possible that I've never locked up anyone innocent because everyone I put in there I examined the evidence very carefully and then went to court thinking I'm not going to ask anyone else to make a decision on innocence or guilt unless I've satisfied the strongest critic I have which is myself mm. um, this is the way evidence has to work and you know it's a big thing for me as you can probably tell the way I'm talking this is just like <laughs> iron clad in my thinking um, yeah, but it's it's so directly uh, applicable because in therapy and in academia, we we go to school, we develop our theories, we develop the thing that we love, and then we try to spend our career researching and showing the thing, my baby, the thing that I've created uh, is the one that helps, is the one that works, and my brand that I've created is therapeutic and effective. So it's the same sort of thing is like, we know who we're going after this criminal. We're going to prove that they're bad. I, I love my therapy. So I'm going to prove that it's the best. So it, I think it is an important lesson for us to learn from. But it also, it also gets to, and this is, I think this is a, a perfect segue, Mark. It, it sort of segues into how we talk about what we do and how we get other people who don't care about adventure therapy to care. Because if we're walking around saying, I know that guy's guilty, and people say, prove it, and you go, no, 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 I just know it. Mm. That is sort of sometimes how a lot of people talk about adventure therapy. It works because time outside is healing. Mm. Um, being outside is healing for some, not others. And so one of the things that's always amazed me about you is your your ability to get police officers to care about adventure therapy, to get the school to care about adventure therapy, to get local government to care about adventure therapy, and being able to speak to the evidence that they want you to do has been what has grown the Walk of Life program. Am I saying that right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. In order to work within schools, and I knew I wanted to work within schools, I didn't want to take kids out of school or even worse, wait till they've been kicked out of school before I started working with them. This is the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff method. Uh, I wanted to get to the top of the cliff and work with the kids up there and try to stop as many of them as possible from falling over the cliff. In order to do that and work within the schools, I had to, do, I, I had to discover what schools want. And most people say, schooling, terrible, terrible, terrible. But 
I had to develop a respect for what teachers are trying to do, and I have a massive respect for what teachers are trying to do. And if I didn't have that, why on earth would they listen to me or give me anything? So I had to understand that they have pressures and time constraints and financial constraints and things that they need um, that are hampering their ability to work with kids. And I had to work with that rather than just saying, oh, teachers are useless, you know, the school system is hopeless. I had to respect them and what they're trying to do and say, what do you want out of this? And then talk in their language. And I was lucky because I worked as a, I, I, in the last six years, I transferred from being a detective to a school-based police officer. And so I was going to a school every day. And suddenly I, I had to, I had to put all my training into teaching myself not to be a teacher, but to understand teachers. Uh, I, I would go into classes and I would teach law with the legal studies teacher. I would go into the home, you know, the, the health and physical education and, and stand up in front of a classroom and teach the laws regarding when they were doing their sex education classes. I would give the legal perspective of that, unlawful common knowledge and laws and consent and ideas around consent and what is rape and, and discuss that in a high school classroom. Suddenly I'm, I'm, I'm retraining myself to be a teacher and understanding where they come from so that when I go, I want to run this program, how can I run this within the school system? And they would say, oh, we need this. And I would say, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I totally understand that. In fact, I thought you would say that, but I can work with that. Uh, I, I won't just sort of throw my hat in the air and say, oh, well, it's useless then, isn't it? You've got to come from a position where you respect and understand the opposing point of view. Uh, and if you don't start there, you can't just shrug your shoulders and go, I don't understand why people don't want to work with me. It's insane. This is, um, oh. should we go in and don't defund the police? Because this is my, my current bugbear at the moment. <laughs> this is exactly what they've done with defund the police. They've taken a perfectly rational idea. And it, it pains me to say this because, like every other police officer in the world, the first time I heard it, I was outraged. The idea behind it is actually something that every other police officer in the world, if you put it to them the right way, would completely agree with. But it's been so stuffed up by people who think that the way to uh, get this collaboration is with by disrespecting the other party and getting to agree with themselves that they've, turned, they've got every police officer offside. Now, I don't know how you do that, but if you went to any police officer in the world and said, what are the jobs that you hate going to? Every decent police officer in the world would go, look, I... The mental health jobs, I don't see, you know, we're not mental health professionals, but we get called to these jobs all the time. Uh, why do we get called domestic violence? Uh, we're not marriage counsellors. We get called to these jobs all the time. I understand when there's violence involved, we're best sorted to do that. But there is a huge charter, of a huge bunch of jobs that come that get shoved onto us that we don't appreciate. Every police officer would agree with that. And so if you said, um, well, what if the homeless people and the uh, mentally ill or people with mental problems or domestic violence jobs that could be done by uh, somebody else, could be done and got taken off your hands, would you appreciate that? And you go, every police officer will go, yeah, that's great. Like, we've been wanting that for ages. Uh, so defund the police at its core is an idea that every police officer would like. Mm. I, I don't understand why they can take an idea that every police officer would be in support of it and create enemies. Um, and it's the same with, you know, everything. This is, I'm getting really on my high horse now, but this is... <laughs> Um, I, I don't understand why people go head to head and can't understand why they can't get collaboration. Um, why they, you know, go head to head with schools and call schools useless and corrupt and racist or whatever, and don't understand why teachers don't want to work with your program. I understood that schools want their kids to get in, in Queensland, we call it QCE points, Queensland Certificate of Education, certain number of points that you need to get to, you to graduate. I look at these programs and they're like, what a stupid rule. Why do we have to do with this rule? Maybe it is a stupid rule and maybe curriculums are terrible things, but that's the, the framework we're working in. So I converted my program this year to include some education and training to get kids a certificate too in outdoor recreation. 
By doing that, they would get four QCE points towards their certificate. The kids in my program this year probably got as many or more as they would have if they didn't do my program at state in grade 10. Some of the kids, I've got at least a few that have dropped out of school. They will finish this year because they went through my program with as many QCE points as their classmates who stayed in school. So the, the school is like, this is absolutely fantastic because you're speaking our language. And I said, great. I'm also speaking my language. I'm trying to help this kid who's dropped out of school and he's, you know, very much in danger of entering the juvenile justice system. I'm doing that work as well. But we're all happy because we've all I've learned to respect them and talk the language of the school. I bet every generation has said this. And uh, at the risk of getting political, we live in such divided times where we don't just ring somebody up and someone who has an opposing view and have a chat with them. But I always find if you just sit with somebody, you'll realize you probably agree on 90% of things. The the issue in your relationship is the 10% that you probably haven't communicated that well. Let's um let's keep Look, that's part, can I, if I could build on that. Um and this uh, this actually probably goes again um back to my policing background. Um it's not even getting to the point what you agree with. This is the most extreme example I can think of. I have set up set up opposite the worst pedophiles I can think of in a interview room and spoken to them. I have had, uh, and and I have done everything possibly in my power to get them accountable for the crimes that they have committed, put them in watch houses, objected to their bail, uh, gone through a court system, and some of them are still in jail to this day and will be for the next couple of decades. In all that, I treated them with respect and with regard to their human rights. Now, if, if it's possible to do that, you should be able to talk to somebody who just simply disagrees with you and treat them with enough respect to treat them as another human being. Like that's the most extreme example I can think of. And I've done that, you know, again, hundreds of times. So let's switch gears here and let's brag about the walk of life program. <laughs> I was that's actually going to, I, I had almost the exact same question. I was going to say switch gears and <laughs> tell us about the walk. Cause I think Will and I know more about your program and I want to make sure that our listeners can hear too. Like, how incredible the Walk of Life program is. So could you like give us a summary just so our listeners know what Walk of Life is about, about the the really cool work that you're doing uh, over there? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, like, you know, uh, Walk of Life program started uh, in probably in about 2014 was last year as a detective. Uh, at that time, I was uh, in an absolute um, mess. Um, uh, very burnt out. Um, had... Uh, Still, child abuse work never bothered me, but the child deaths did. wasn't diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder till later, but that's what it was. My dad died that year. 2014 was not a good year for me. Um, realised I had to get out. Um, tried looking at a couple of jobs, uh, unsuccessful in getting them. Uh, the the Walk Life program really began with the genesis of an idea that I was volunteering at the time with uh, youth groups and, and taking them out bush and realising that it's not enough just to give them a good experience. They would have a better experience if you train them up. And so I was tra training kids uh, in youth groups while I was a detective to cook food, dehydrate it, set up tents, how to organise an expedition, execute expeditions. And I was taking, you know, we were doing expeditions like taking kids across Cape York because I knew Cape York so well. We crossed Cape York by four drive from east to west and camped on the side of the Mitchell River out of Kaunyama and a little community out there. You know, I went spotlighting at night for crocodiles and went fishing for barra in the daytime. We were doing some pretty out there stuff. So in 2014, I had that sort of experience and I had all this experience as a detective in child protection and I was seriously thinking about quitting the police. And the school-based police officer at the time wanted to become a detective, so I knew her job was coming up. 
And I said, what the heck does a school bus police officer do? I knew nothing about it. I actually thought it probably would sound like a waste of time. And she said, why don't you come with me, you know, ride with me and, and uh, I'll show you. So we went to the school and she showed me what she did and she was talking to kids. And I said, well, so could you actually just run your own program as a school bus officer? She goes, heck yeah, absolutely. So I went and spoke to the principal and I said, um, I've got this idea that if a police officer took kids out bush and just taught them a bunch of skills, it might have some good outcomes. Literally, that was my pitch. I had, you know, I hadn't even written a risk assessment in my life at that time. I had no qualifications apart from my policing qualifications. And the principal said, that sounds like the greatest idea. You come work for me. We'll make this happen. And I said, okay, just like that. All right. Uh, I walked out of that interview, went in and started this program. And it literally started with nothing more than that idea and the idea that I would work with kids, skill them up throughout a term and take them on an expedition at the end of the term. And, you know, immediately we started doing, you know, canoe trips, you know, three days, like I said, 100 kilometre hikes. Uh, I would take them out to the to bushland areas that I knew of. I would, um, because I uh, had such a respect and understanding of the traditional owners up in Cape York and I'd got to know them around this uh, area down here. And I had a bit of my own experience from that bundling area down uh, northern New South Wales in that area that we were talking about before. I would take these kids and, you know, I would invite traditional owners to share stories and all this sort of came together and I suddenly realised that I was using every skill that I'd ever developed in my life. Uh, all the skills that I had where I'd have to run an expedition at short notice, I'd have to go up to Cape York, you know, I'd walk into work one morning and the boss would say, hey, Mark, you're, you're needed in Kaunyama, there's a rape out there. Okay, great. I'll jump, I should be out there in seven hours. I'll jump in the four drive now. Like literally putting together expeditions into a remote country at the drop of a hat. All that skill was useful. My skills at cooking, all that was useful. My skills at dehydrating, my skills even playing the guitar, all that outdoor education stuff, which was just a part of my upbringing and a part of my detective life. Uh, and then all my understanding of trauma and my personal experience with stress and post-traumatic stress, all that was relevant. Suddenly I realised that everything that I'd done in my life had led to this point where all my skills were being put together to develop this uh, program to help kids and I've been doing that for the last six years. This year, I expanded the program again. I, Like I said, I uh, realised that the kids were getting really good skills over the course of this program, but they had nothing to show for it academically. And so I uh, upskilled myself to be a trainer and assessor and worked with a registered training organisation, partnered up with them, so the kids now get a, a certificate out of it. Uh, I don't know where it's going to go from here. I've got some ideas, but it, it's just sort of been this natural progression that suddenly said that everything that you learn, you don't have to walk away from just because you no longer have the mental ability to go do a child death job you can still use all those skills and use them in a more proactive way for the benefit of kids and it's been the best thing i've ever done and and one of the things that's amazing about it and this is so clever and unique to adventure therapy is and i think for anybody outside of the australian context is the whole program say it's a year long the the young people who take part in this the students they all get not only high school credits as you will the credits they're getting make them more employable so they're getting certificates in food safe handling certificates in the responsible service of alcohol which that means now they can go work at a cafe now they can work at a, at a in any type of hospitality setting so there's it's it's not only the adventure therapy and the therapeutic side it's speaking the language of and when you read the government like the police commissioner's report this is what we need to do to prevent youth crime the walk of life program ticks every measurable outcome that the government is looking for which is why it's being recognized even though mark is going solo here and we need to figure out how to expand what you're doing yeah it's so is it just you mark it's pretty Sorry, much 
yeah, no, it's pretty much just me, just a bit of a passion project. But uh, we've got plans to change that, but it's all in a bit of a state of flux at the moment. Um, but so if you're in Australia, I, I, send Mark your uh, resume. <laughs> and, and money. If you can pay yeah. for your own job, that would be even better. <laughs> Indeed. Um, can you, I, I, you've already given us enough time on your day off, but I'd love the listeners to hear about your last trip to, to Cape York. Who went with you oh, who yeah. and, and that experience? Yeah, they, uh, that was a cracking trip. That was one of the best I've done. I, you know, like I said, I've got a huge connection to Cape York and some of the people up there. And you know, I hadn't been up there since I moved to Bundaberg, actually. So I hadn't been up there for 10 years. But I always knew that that was somewhere where if kids went up there, it would just blow their minds. So as part of this year with this um, program and the certificate that I'm doing, I've got a cock- cockatoo in the background uh, providing some ambience. Uh, I sent... Um, Nature base. Yeah. So we drove from uh, Bundaberg up to Cape York, which is about uh, 1,800 kilometres. Uh, so it took us three days, and we went up there for the Law Indigenous Dance Festival. So uh, that's a festival that happens every two years, although it hasn't happened in four years because of COVID. Uh, we, we took the kids up there. They did, you know, smoking ceremonies and welcome to country up there. They went on um, um, bush tucker tours and bush medicine tours with some of the local traditional owners. Uh, we saw not just Indigenous history, but also some of the uh, the history of uh, James Cook. Uh, Cooktown, where we went, uh, was where he landed his boat after running against the Great Barrier Reef. And we had a look at some of that history as well. And we had big conversations about, you know, reconciliation and, and how uh, how we can live together. And despite opposing views, again, this is a bit of a recurring theme. And mm. uh, we just had the, the, just this most amazing time. And the, the pinnacle of it was we... Um, Went to this dance festival and we saw communities from all over Cape York come down and show off their dances. And it was just an extraordinary trip. It, it was just sort of culminated. It just brought together everything that we had done up to that point. The kids had been building skills to take part in this expedition. They went on the biggest expedition. They had certainly been on their lives. And, it's, you know, it was a, a big, big deal. Yeah, the, the stuff they got out of it. Like you could, just, we would just sit around the camper at night and just buzz, you know, and just have conversation back and forth about what happened during the day and, and uh, yeah, it was a it was a cracking trip. Uh, one I hope to do again. But it, it just sort of again, it just involved everything that I hold dear. You know that indigenous knowledge, that um, the skills development to carry out big expeditions. A lot of that therapeutic work that you get uh, when you're having conversations about the really important stuff uh, and confronting your own maybe your own biases, but also your own fears. Uh, a lot of adventure. It was awesome. It was such a good trip. So yeah, there's actually if you look at the My Police blog, there's a uh, a video on it uh, that I put together that uh, is on the Bundaberg Police blog and probably give you a better idea of what it was like, but it was a cracking trip. And you're pretty good with a drone, Mark. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I forgot to mention that as one of the skills, something I've come up with. Uh, <laughs> Except I'm on that trip, I flew it straight into a cliff. So, um, but luckily it was insured, so I was able to get a new drone. But yeah, drone footage is fun. How much is drone insurance? I didn't know you could get that. <laughs> yeah, you can actually. Um, yeah. DJI Care Refresh, uh, I highly recommend it if you are new to drains and you're a little bit expert with it and there are big, big cliffs around. And um, so for our listeners that aren't from Australia, Cape York is, it's kind of like a beautiful tropical area at the very northernmost point of Australia, right? It is, yeah. Very sparsely populated. Um, so if you look at the map of Australia, it's that pointy bit on the uh, the northeast coast and it is, um, it's about a Oh, 800 kilometres to 1,000 kilometres 
And it's populated, you know, really there's just a couple of little remote communities up there with maybe a thousand, two thousand people in some of the bigger ones. Most of the smaller ones are maybe a couple hundred people. But for the most part, it is big and remote. Uh, it's it's sort of like a destination bucket list for just about everybody that likes to travel to remote areas. It's basically it's a you know four drives up there. There are no bitumen roads. It's all dirt roads. We only went to the southern bit where we could sort of uh, stay in most of the bitumen because we had to take a bus around. Um, but it's just an it's incredible country. And, uh, yeah, some of the things you'll see there, just the, the country and the, the people that you'll meet up there, it'll just blow your mind. I don't, I don't want to paint too rose-glassed rose glass picture of it because, you know, I also worked up there in child abuse there, and there's terrific things up there and a lot of uh, alcohol-fueled violence and child abuse is mm. rampant there. I've, you know, it's funny. I, I, I've seen both sides of Cape York, and I one doesn't take away from the other. You know, all the good things up there, doesn't make me forget all the terrible things that have happened up there and and are happening up there and but but that also has never made me forget how much I love that country and some of the people up there so yeah, yeah. I haven't been there but from what I've seen like it, it hits a level of rural and remote that goes far beyond what most people have any exposure to yeah yeah it's a pretty wild place and you know like I said you can go up there and and you know you, you've only got to go up there and just start seeing crocodiles up there you know this prehistoric animal in, in yeah, i was gonna say you say it's not that like, populated but i mean people wise but there's like a massive amount of like saltwater crocodiles right the biggest ones are up there aren't they absolutely yeah you don't go swimming up there uh you stay well back from the water's edge um, <laughs> which is which is an interesting thing to write a risk assessment about when you're taking kids up there but, i knew um, a guy that was from that general area and he told me that the rule was like and i don't know if this is true or if he was just blowing smoke up my ass but he was saying that if you're walking a dog in that that area of australia the rule is you always walk with your dog on the water side of you so if the if the crocodile jumps out that'll at least get your dog and you'll be saved and i was yeah, like oh my god that's so scary <laughs> yeah i wouldn't take dog getting any of the water up there they've had a lot of dogs taken uh, and a lot of people taken up there too. I've um, been involved in some investigations where people were taken by crocs. Ridgely, you you've heard him growling a bit. He's got allergies today, and he's being the bulldog is being incredibly needy, and so he's he never comes in my office, and he's been in here the whole time, of course, while we're recording, just asking me for scratching him. Oh, I thought you were saying he was growling because of my comment about walking with a dog near the water. No, I, I actually <laughs> Renee would put me near the water over the dog. Oh, absolutely, I would too. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, Mark, thank you so much for sharing. And it's and it's such an interesting um your program is just so unique and it's uh it's so cool to have your perspective and your your experience in the adventure therapy community. I wonder as a uh, lofty uh a lofty question for you, you know, you're on your you've joined our committee, the Australian Association for Bush Adventure Therapy. You're you've voiced your your suggestions for the field. Um, and I wonder what do you what do you hope as a field of adventure therapy? Do you have a wish or an ambition for where we're going? What I understand that's a corny question, but no, that's a good question. It's it's in fact it's a really hard one to answer. Um what because this has all happened so organically that it's never come as a result of a a vision for the future of whatever we're working towards. It's just sort of been, um, you know, lighting my way through a fog with a dim lantern, uh, taking a step at a time and then looking back and going, oh, yeah, that actually um, is the right path. That's good. And then looking ahead at this uh, blank wall again. My best guess is I would like to see less fighting between government agencies and private businesses and not-for-profit uh, organisations 
and being able to work together. You know, this year came about as a memorandum of understanding between the police, the registered train organisation, which is a private business, a for-profit business, and a non-profit uh, organisation uh, called Wild Projects, who support Indigenous youth. And the three of us sat down, wrote an MOU, and worked together through the year. Collaboration is actually a lot harder than I thought it would ever would be. <laughs> but when you do it, the benefits are just huge. So, and, and again, that goes back, we could probably tie this up from previously in the conversation about the idea of negotiating with other people from a position of respect. We all respect that we have something important to bring to the table. Uh, we sat down and we each put our cards on the table and say, this is what I'll bring, this is my part, this is your part, but working together will be greater than the sum of our individual parts. And we did that through mutual respect and understanding rather than being very jealously guarding our processes and our intellectual properties and all that other stuff. That at the end of the day, if it's going to be for the benefit of the kids, share everything that you can. Mm -hmm. um, the traditional owners that I have most respected have been the ones that shared everything. This is the example that I'm using for the right way to do it who have said, if I want to keep my culture, I want to share it as much as possible. The more I share it, the more I get to keep it, which was actually a statement that um, uh, the traditional owner who gave us our welcome at AITC um, said, I have to give it away to keep it, my culture. I, I think if we share things with each other, what I see for the future is collaboration between all those different entities, realise that we're all working together for the same cause, which is to better our youth. Thank you so much, Mark. That was a very eloquent answer to, to a stupid question. That was um, excellent. No, Mark, thank you so much for your time on your day off. And uh, I'm glad you got to squeeze a surf in. And uh, and I just am um, always so appreciative of your friendship and, and perspectives. Yeah, thanks a ton. Are, are you going to be at 9 IATC, Mark? Oh, I'd love to be. I uh, don't know how I'll get there at the moment. It may not be possible, but if um, things go my way, absolutely, because I'd, uh, I'd love nothing better. Well, I'm looking forward to the opportunity to shake your hand in person at some point. We've had a couple great uh, Zoom conversations, so looking yeah. forward to, uh, to actually getting to meet you at some point in the near future. Yeah, it'd be nice to meet you and be nice to meet Will again. I've actually only met Will face-to-face -face on three occasions I was the other day. Yeah. Oh, he's not that great. <laughs> So it would be definitely good to catch up. We're well overdue. We'll uh, sit up there in Norway and look at moose walking by. I assume that's what they do in Norway. And trolls. Trolls. Talk to, trolls. Talk till the cows come home. Sounds yeah. good. The trolls ride the moose or? I don't know. The Vikings and trolls, man. That's all they do. Awesome. All right, team. Thanks so much, Mark. I'll see you all later. Thanks, Will. Awesome. Thanks, Jeff. You're all the best. See you guys. Cheers, man.